Well, shall we pray? Father, we come before you. We give you thanks for the grace of God towards us, for the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your power displayed on our behalf. We're coming tonight to ask you to teach us. Teach us by your spirit. Sanctify us in our inner men as we hear your word, as we think on that word, as we hear the voice of your spirit, so that we will be able to fulfill your purpose in our experience on this earth. So we commit our way to you tonight, and we're asking you to teach us for your glory, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Paul had said it in 1 Thessalonians, um, pray without ceasing. That seems like almost an incredible thought, to pray without ceasing. How can that possibly be? And what we have been doing over the last couple weeks and what we're going to continue to do is to ask Paul through his epistles to explain to us what that actually means. What does it look like if I am going to actually, in reality, pray without ceasing? Right? Last week we were in the, the book of First Thessalonians. Tonight we're going to be in Second Thessalonians. And as I start, before I get going, I want to say Second Thessalonians will show you why it is that I said at the very beginning, we can't cover this material. The book of Second Thessalonians is saturated in prayer. We're going, to, we're going to think about that in just a moment. If I had, if you had your students, you would have been spending all week reading through it over and over again. I am going to be tonight kind of referring to the entire book. I cannot read the entire book to start with. Although the entire book only takes about five minutes to read, so theoretically we could read the entire book. And part of what we have to say tonight depends on the understanding that it's a very short epistle, and yet Paul prays in that epistle. And if we were, going to, we were going to study those prayers, we would take at least four weeks to do it because of the, the number that are there. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, in order to, to get a hold of what is happening in, first Thess- or, excuse me, in Second Thessalonians, we have to first start back at who are the Thessalonians and what's happened for them. It gives us a a perspective with respect to how Paul prays for them, how Paul is concerned about them and what that means. At the time that Paul wrote this, and we don't have the exact date, but we're pretty close, the Thessalonian church is probably not more than three years old, probably about two years old. Now now think about that for just a moment at the beginning of your, your paper. They have two years ago, they were idol worshipers. Right? We're not talking about people that were just, you know, grew up in the church and didn't care. Right? We're not talking about that kind of a situation. We're not talking about people that grew up in a Christian world and had never embraced it, saw it from the outside, and never stepped in. We are talking about people that grew up and lived in a world in which there was no Christianity, in which there was no gospel, and there was no church. Three years prior to this, Paul says, though, when they... Paul comes there. He says, here's the first thing I want to say concerning you. When you heard the gospel, you received it as it was, the word of God. The word of God. They had received it as that. Now, what would that gospel have been? It's important for us to understand what he's talking about when he says they received that gospel. Those people, although they didn't know that there was a God the way it was, had sinned against the living God. They had already were in a wrong relationship with a God they didn't even know existed. And a man came to them and told them concerning who that God was, what their relationship to that, that God was, and what they had to do to correct that relationship in order to have eternal life. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about going to people and telling them who God is, what their relationship to God is, and how they can correct that wrong relationship through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to the place where they could know eternal life. Now, when they received that message, it says this, that they turned from idols to serve the living God. It's, a, it's a, an offer of grace that the sin that we have committed, which separates us from God, has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes 
this offer. But if I'm going to come to him, I have to turn away from everything else. I have to entrust myself into the hands of the one who is Savior. He does the saving, but I have to put myself in his hands to do that. In an act of faith, they had done that. They had turned from idols to serve the living God. Two years before. What had their experience been since that time? Right? What, has, what has happened to them since that time? Well, when a person entrusts themselves into the hands of God, God takes that person. Remember at the very beginning of our consideration, we said that if you're going to pray without ceasing, or I say, well, Paul had three, con- three thoughts that were clear in his mind <clears throat> that enabled him to pray without ceasing. Number one was that he was always in the presence of God. He was always in that presence. We'll see that as we, we continue to go through here. That he can, he can refer to God at any time he can, because he's the present one. That he's, he can always exercise faith and he can always pray. The second thing was that God has a plan. If you want to have a prayer life, you have to know that God is carrying out a plan. I have to know, as we said, that tonight God is working in this place to complete a plan. It's not my work to get that done. It's my work to do my part. But the kingdom will come because of the power of the Spirit of God who has come to this earth to glorify Jesus Christ. And he will do that. And because he will do that, Paul could trust that those people who had turned from idols to serve the living God would have a certain experience. What's that? They would now have light from God, which would enable them to know what's the right direction to go, and they would now have life from God. One of the reasons, we're going to be thinking about that later on, one of the reasons why we are not like everybody else on the, on the earth, we still can sin, we still have all kinds of problems and confusions, but people, Paul says, out in this world do not have a knowledge of what, what's going on, and they don't have any life. No inward life to face the realities that they're up against. Christian is a person who has had light come to them. Jesus is the light of the world. Let's powerfully know that you know, if you have read this word, you know what God's doing and you know which way things are going. Second thing, you were brought to life. You were born again of the Spirit of God. And God began to work. That work which God does is critical to Paul's thinking here. So that when a report comes back about this church, here are the things it says concerning that church. Number one, that church was expressing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When I heard about the faith that you had, and secondly, they were expressing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they, or love for one another. And then thirdly, they had a hope concerning the future. Their whole lives had been changed. They were no longer drifting along in life and wondering which way it's going. They now knew where things were going, and they had a hope, and they had a confidence in that. That had all come to pass without Paul going back there. He was only there for a, a little over a month, probably. And yet, this has come to pass. Why did it come to pass? Because God was at work in them. God is at work in you. All right, now, next thing we, we need to note is that's not the only part of their experience. What's the other side? They are facing serious opposition. The serious opposition comes from two directions. One thing is that if you go in, if a person comes into this life, they are up against a system which is controlled by the devil and they end up in problems. There is opposition from outside. It's all the way through this book. There's a lot. We're going to be thinking about that. They are always facing opposition from people who don't know God. It's just part of the program. But they also face another opposition. That is the opposition which is in their own soul. They are up against impurity because it's an impure world. Not only do people dislike them, but they are also facing the opposition of impurity and other problems that that can come in. So they have opposition against them. And so Paul is writing to encourage them. So what he has to say here. It comes in the light of that encouragement to keep on going. But he's encouraged that they are going, but he's encouraged them to keep on going. Now, let's look at the, at the book as a whole. All right, You got it on your paper there. Uh, let's think about this for just a second. What do we learn about Paul's life? That's just the background of the book. Uh, 
what we want to think about is Paul's prayers for them. How does he pray for them? All right? The first thing we want to note about is Paul's prayers. This is all the way through his epistles. He says this is a consistent prayer life. Praying without ceasing is at least consistency in prayer. Now, most likely, Paul is at Corinth when he wrote this letter. He could have already been in Ephesus, all right? But it's most likely that this is taking place when he is at Corinth. Think of the other things that are on Paul's mind. He has other churches all over Asia Minor. One of those churches is in Galatia, and they're having problems about this time. The Galatian letter was probably written about the same time. That's a serious error coming into that church. There are problems in Corinth. He has a whole series of churches that he has has planted, and he can't get to. He can't call up. He can't interact with. So Paul says about his prayer life, here it is, I pray for you continuously. I'm praying continuously. That's it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. It says, to this end we pray for you always that our God will do certain things. We'll come back to what he prays. Paul's always praying. He's always lifting it up. So a consistent, uh, for a, uh, <clears throat> this praying without ceasing involves a consistent life. And the second thing, though, I want to note is this. It's an overflowing prayer life. It's an overflowing prayer life. That is that it bubbles up. And I'm going to say that on the basis of the book. Again, it's 47 verses long, 47 verses. It takes reading it slowly. I I think you could read slowly in less than six minutes. I read it out loud. I was reading pretty fast, but out loud in five minutes. Okay. In the course of five minutes of reading, if this was read to a church, if I read it to you, and it was directed to you, you would have been prayed for six times. Six times in six minutes. When was the last time that you had a conversation which involved six prayers in six minutes for you as somebody was explaining something to you? His purpose is not to pray for them. His purpose is to instruct them, to encourage them, to prepare them for what they're going to face. But, oh, as he's going along, out of his, his rich teaching, suddenly this pops out and this pops out. Now, again, if you're, if you're looking for the six already, because I know what happens, people start looking for it. So anyway, <laughs> I'll come to him in just a moment. But that includes, that if you're going to think about the six, You're including the grace be to you at the beginning and the grace be to you at the end. Okay, if you don't like that, if you don't want to include those as prayers, he only prayed four times in six minutes. That's incredible, isn't it? Because we're asking, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? It means to be in a place where prayer just bubbles to the surface. So I want you to note that, that he keeps doing it. This is extremely important. All right, now the next thing I want you to note, it's on the paper right there, is the simplicity of his prayers. The simplicity of his prayers. And I would say that the Paul's prayers that are recorded are all very simple. Now sometimes you could look at things like the prayers in Ephesians and say, these are really complex. But they're not actually complex. What happens in the Paul's prayers, in, particularly in the prison prayers, is this. He tells you what he's praying for, and then he explains why he did it. His explanation for why he wants this to take place is often very complicated. But the prayer itself is short, direct, and, and right to the point. I want you to be filled with the knowledge. This is in Colossians. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the prayer. And then he goes into, in order that. The reason I'm praying for you that is because if that happens to you, then these things will happen to you. That's the thoughtfulness that goes behind his prayer. That's the depth that he has in his own soul as he comes to pray. But it's not the prayer itself. The prayer is that God would just fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. At this juncture of his experience, all right, we're back in Thessalonians, Paul is not yet in the habit of explaining himself as he offers the prayers. He just, here it is. Here are the prayers. This is the desire. I want to read all four of them. 
All right, that part I will do. I'll just read the four of them because, again, this is kind of survey. And I want to return to the first one. We're going to concentrate on the first one, try to learn something about how Paul interacted with them. Uh, but I'm going to try to read them and not get too carried away because uh, we don't want to spend the whole night going over the part that is the introduction. All right, we want to get to the actual passage that we're concerned about. All right, the first prayer that he prays is in chapter 1, verse 11. This is the one to which we will return. It's in verses 11 and 12. It says, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first one. The second one is found in chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. The third one is in chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, again, that's short prayer, 16 words in the English language. I, did, I didn't count them up in the Greek language, so I don't know. But in the English language, there's 16 words, and it couldn't be much longer than that. Think of how much he prays for there and how important it is. Think about that one. This is where the temptation comes. I'll try to get past it quickly. Because he says, here's what I want, here's what I want to have happen. I'm looking at this group of people. Here he is. He's, he's praying for a particular group of people. He's got them in mind. He says, here's what I want God to do. I want him to direct your heart. And the word to direct your heart, it's, it's an interesting word. Um, he had used it in the first Thessalonians to say, I want God to direct my way to you. I want him to do that. When he said, I, wanted, I want him to direct my way to you, what he was saying is, I, I want him to take out of the way all the things that are in the way of me getting there. I want him to, to create a path by which I can get there. Right? It's kind of like one of those times when you got water coming down across everything. You say, no, I've got to dig a ditch. I've got to put a ditch here so I can direct the thing, so I can make it end at a certain place. I need to direct it. It says, may the Lord direct your hearts. And he says, into two things. May he may make a path for you and remove all the obstacles that keep you from getting to this place, lead you to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. How about that? There's the, that'd be a worthwhile prayer to pray for somebody. Now, what, what's involved in all that? It's a little hard to know exactly what Paul was thinking about there, because the love of God can go two ways, because the way it's constructed, it could mean the love God has for us, or it could mean that he's directing our path so that we return that love, the love that we would have for him because he's directed our path. The same thing with regards to the steadfastness of Christ. That's a, that's a tremendous word, that steadfastness there, because it, it's, it's what a man does when he opposes, when he's, when he's determined to reach a goal and he's not going to be swayed. He's not going to let anything get in his way of getting to that end. That's what the Lord Jesus did on our behalf. He set his face like a flint, but he, he had an unswerving determination to get to a goal no matter what it cost, because the goal was worthwhile. So there is a steadfastness of the Lord, and we might need the Spirit of God to direct us to that, to appreciate something of what God has done on our behalf. But then the, uh, the other side of it is, if we see that, then we could have the experience of being changed into his likeness. So that, um, how about this, Leon Morris cheating. He's cheating, right? He says, you can't, can't determine whether it's this or this. But he says this, Paul could have made it clear if he wanted to. So it's his conviction, again, this is him, that Paul left it vague because he has both directions in mind and he wants to leave it there. That he wants the Spirit of God to come to you and direct your heart, direct my heart, do what's necessary to remove every obstacle to me understanding the love of God. And as I see the love of God, then to respond to that love with love myself. That I would be work, the Spirit of God would do a work 
to reveal to me what it meant for the Lord to come to this earth and to steadfastly oppose all that was up against him, to go all the way to Gethsemane, to go all the way to a cross, to hold, hold my sin in himself so that he could pay the price, so that I might, understanding that beholding him as in a mirror, might be changed into that likeness so that in the circumstances, this would make a difference for a people that were under persecution, right? That in those circumstances, they might know, they might themselves know that courage, that fortitude, that determination, that steadfastness to keep on going, inspired by the Lord himself. Now, again, we don't know, but he got that all into 16 words in the English language again. But it's not a complicated prayer. It's a desire of his heart. Right? It's a desire of his heart. And then there are those, again, I want to say that there are some who oppose the idea of even calling these prayers because just as may the Lord, this is just the desire of Paul. But I would remind you again of what we said at the beginning. Here's, Here's a man who we know walk with God. Here's the promise of God. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, and that's certainly true for Paul, Ask whatever you wish. He is expressing wishes. He's saying, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It will be done. Now, what he's asking here is not for a miracle that we can see. He's asking for people to be sanctified. He knows the purpose of God. He knows that they need to understand these things, and he he believes God is working towards that end, and so he addresses it. Okay, that's the third one. That's as much as we can go over that. That's, that's on the side because we need to come back to the first prayer. In chapter 3, verse 16, he finishes it out again. Uh, a little different prayer, but it also very important for a people facing persecution. It says, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstances. The Lord be with you all. Now, there be a, there's an easy prayer to pray powerful prayer that God would give to people an experience of peace in everything. Paul's very rich in the way he looks at things. Why is he very rich in it? Because the gospel to him was a matter of un, that's the way it's put in the New American Standard, unfathomable. I have to be very careful about that. It was a hard word to pronounce. Unfathomable riches in Jesus Christ. You can't get to the depths of them. The eternal God who spoke the worlds into existence is at work in individuals. And Paul was convinced of that. He had faith and he had confidence in that. Therefore, he's going to ask for great things. He's going to ask for you to understand in totality the love of God. Last week, we're aware that God might sanctify you entirely, all of you and entirely. How about that? I think that's a great prayer. That Everybody be sanctified. And everybody should be sanctified as far as it's possible to sanctify him. Why? Because he's the one who's able to save to the last degree. Those that come to God by him because he's always living to make intercession for them. Tonight, every person in this room who has committed themselves to Jesus Christ is the object of his intercession. But tonight you're not deserted. You're not alone. You're not facing this on your own. You'll never be facing it on your own. He'll be with you, but he's also as the high priest of the church, standing before God, interceding, asking on the behalf of those that are right here. How about that? So Paul, realizing that, he can ask God for big things. That takes us back to the first prayer because I want to, I want to look at that for just a moment. How did Paul pray? He praying very, very simply, with regards to the real needs he's facing. His prayers always jump out of his instructions. If we went through the book and had time for that, we'd see that each of these prayers is just the where he's going to go with God because of what he just said. The first prayer starts in verse 11. We, we've read it just a moment ago. But <clears throat> it starts because he has been talking about the second coming. The people are in, in Thessalonica are facing serious persecution. And he says, hang in there. You are hanging in there. Keep on hanging in there. Because there is a day when it's all going to be sorted out. God is going to sort this all out. And when he sorts it out, he's going to separate things. And those people that know God 
will be blessed. And those people who don't know God will get what they ask for. They don't want God. He'll, he'll put them off. He'll put them off the side. And this is going to be a, it's, it's a day that Paul understands. He talks about another, in the book of Romans is a day when the revelation of the sons of God's come. Because right now, tonight, it's really hard to tell who does and who doesn't know God. But that will not always be so. We've said that. And, it, and there's separation comes in here. And it's, these are going away. And these are becoming, it's becoming manifested. Now, that's a, that's a big day. And we said last week, there's a certain terror to that day. Because uh, when the climax to this history takes place, when the end of this dispensational period of time, this, this era of history comes to an end, there is a violent description of where, where it finishes there, and this division is somewhat scary. Now he prays for them. In light of that, because that's where it starts there, to this end, all right? To the end, with this in view is what he's saying. With this in view, what's going to happen in the last day as it's all sorted out, here's what I'm going to pray for you, all right? To this end, we also we pray for you always that the God that God will count you worthy of your calling. That's the first part of it. He'll count you worthy of your calling. Paul loves the word "worthy" with regards to our living for Christ. He uses it over and over again. The word "worthy" is simply, and I have spoken of this before, so again, just to remind everybody. Um, it's something that matches something else. The idea is to have equal weight. Something that fits with something else. And particularly something important that fits with something else important. We are living in an age in which there are no demands on us. We are allowed to be anything we want to be. You can go to the store dressed any way you want to be or as little or much, it just, it's all acceptable, right? Everything's acceptable. There's no, uh, if you go to a wedding, again, when I was little, you go to a wedding, everybody dressed a certain way. Now it could be anything at a wedding. It could be anything, all right? Because there's no sense. So it's very hard for us to catch this word that there's sometimes, we, we kind of mock it, okay? There's, there's kings, there are royalty, and they have to act a certain way because of who they are. And we kind of think at that and say, Bleh. why should my life be limited by who? And again, it's this idea that certain things match other things. Right? But Paul looks at the church and he says this, this ought to be true for us. We have received a wonderful salvation we have received from God enormous blessing. Our lives should reflect that. They must reflect that. You must walk in a manner worthy of that. You can't let yourself off on the basis, as we said a moment ago, of being like people who don't know God. They don't have life and they don't have light. But you do have life and you have light. Therefore, your life ought to be different. Right? So he says, I'm praying this so that as this moment comes when God separates those who don't know God from those who do know God, that it will begin to be apparent in your life that you deserve to be in this category because there is every manifestation that the life of God is in you. He is not saying, he's not arguing here that you can earn the salvation, that God's going to accept you because you were there. He's just saying when that takes place, may it be so that your conduct, your life, the weight of your experience on this earth would match the salvation that you've been given. That's quite a prayer. Right? What does that mean? What will it look like? And he goes in the next part of the prayer, I believe what he's, he's doing is turning to how will that work out? What has to be true for me if I am going to be worthy? Because different people could put different standards up as to what you ought to be so you'll be worthy in that moment. Now, Paul's putting his standard up here. This is what he's saying. This is what I want to see happen for you. And it, that comes in the last part of the verse. They might count you worthy of your calling, and the calling is the effective calling in Christ, the one that calls you to himself enables you to live, all right? And he says, this is what I'm also praying, and he will fulfill 
I'm putting the he in there, and fulfill, that God will do this, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Every desire for goodness. Now, let me just uh, put this together so you'll, you'll see how it all fits. There are two phrases, the desire for goodness and the work of faith, all right? The fulfill goes with both of them. He's asking God to fulfill both their desire for goodness and the work of faith, all right? He says that I desire that God would fulfill every, and the every goes with both of them. Every desire for goodness and every work of faith, all right? At the end, after he gives those two statements, he says this, that he might do it with power. And the power goes with both the, uh, with both the desire for goodness. But that would be fulfilled because of God's power and that your work of faith would be fulfilled with power. Now, that, that, the point I want to get here is that they're going to be doing good things and living by faith. That's what will distinguish them as worthy. Does that make sense? We can put all kinds of standards up here, but Paul is focusing on two things. That they are aiming at good things. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then that they are living by faith. And that faith is also working itself out. All right? It's not just that they have faith, that they've trusted the Lord. It's that that faith is working itself out. Let's go back over those two. First of all, he says, every desire for good. That's what it says in the New American Standard. Um, that's a little weak for the, the thought here. The desire for goodness is this. It is a desire which not only do I have, but presses me to commitment. It is to commit. It is to determine. It is to resolve. Every resolution I have, every time I have a determination in my soul for goodness, that God will fulfill it. Every time. Every time. Um, I don't spend a lot of time regretting the past. I'll just tell you that. I don't look back very often. So, so, I, I, so I have to pre... I, I'm not... Because people can get to my age and they can sit there and say, hey, I made all kinds of mistakes and they can ruminate about all the junk that... They, okay, I don't do that very often. Okay. So I don't want to, to make it sound that direction. But this verse, as I was studying, it kind of does make me regret certain things. And I will, I'll tell you exactly what they were. Not so that... You can know about my own regrets, but so that I can accurately inspire and instruct you as to what God wants to do in you. Because of the teaching that I received, and again, on, on certain things, there, there's flesh in their spirit, right? There's flesh in the spirit. We all believe that, right? That we want to be in the spirit, not in the flesh, all right? I'm, I'm with that. At the very beginning, I'm not saying it was wrong teaching. I'm just saying at the very beginning, I heard it this way. I don't want to do anything that isn't in the Spirit. And so I didn't do anything. You got it? Now, that's, that's, that's really kind of reducing it. All right? I, it's not quite that bad, but I spent an awful lot of time in my early days wondering, is this thought from God or is it from myself? Hmm, hmm, hmm. And by the time I figured it out, it was too late to do anything about it anyway. So we just, we went by. And, and, and I was really, I kind of, I have to admit this, because again, you know, when you, one of the reasons you don't want to regret things and say, well, boy, if I could go back there. Well, the only problem is if I go back there, I would probably do exactly the same thing I did then because I was immature and I mean, I wouldn't have changed. So my chances of doing exactly what I did the first time, the second time, so then you would have done it twice. You don't want it twice on the record, right? All right. So anyway, but you don't want to go back there and think about all that. But, but I do think on that. If I think too long about it, I, I was kind of a spiritual elitist. That God works through certain people. They are the people who have committed themselves and have grown in faith and have come to this level and can walk in the Spirit. And I had this view that there were a few people that really walked in the Spirit, and the rest of them just kind of were out there. We got it. Don't trust them. Do not trust them. 
Now, I won't tell you where I thought. I really wasn't convinced I was in this group, right? I wasn't convinced of that. I was pretty much convinced I was in this group. <laughs> and that, that leads to an end that you don't do things. Because you wonder, is that thought from me or is it from God? Or is it from my flesh or is it from God? Here's an interesting thing about this passage. These people are three years old in the Lord at most. They came straight out of idolatry and they don't have a New Testament to appeal to. All they have is Old Testament scriptures. Most of them are not Jewish and aren't even familiar with the Old Testament. Now, we don't know how much familiarities they had at this particular time, but but books were very expensive. The chances that those people had gone home and read <laughs> the Torah, the Old Testament law, they even had, they wouldn't have had copies of it in the first place. They couldn't read Hebrew in the second place. This is, they are very limited. And yet Paul says this, here's what I am praying, that God will fulfill every desire that you have, every resolve that comes into your soul because of goodness. That's what he's saying. Every good thought that comes in. Why? Because if you entrust yourself to God, he is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you're not committed to God, then, of course, yeah, flesh is all over the place. I admit that. And, but if you've come to that place, if you've come to that place where you put yourself in God's hands, if you just prayed the Lord's Prayer every morning and just thought, this is the way I'm going to live. I'm going to live. Your name has to be hallowed. Your kingdom has to come. Your will has to be done. You have done that. God isn't going to dump you. He is at work in you. And when he works in you, what's he do? What does he do in us when he works in us? He works to do his good pleasure. And he's a God of goodness. I've never quite gotten over that. Moses, he wants to see the glory of God. I'll tell you what I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to show you my goodness. Where is the glory of God in in the greatest way displayed? Well, you can argue in different ways, but I believe it's displayed at a cross. This is the greatness of the God we serve. But what is it? It is an act of the goodness of the God we serve, that the one who we have offended is willing to pay the deepest possible price to give us a way of escape. He's a God of goodness, kindness towards people. The Lord was very kind to people. They liked to be close to him unless they opposed him on a religious basis. Now, what's he say here? I'm praying. Paul is praying for all of them. And he's praying for every time that comes up. He doesn't say that he will fulfill your great desires for goodness, for your well-thought-through desires for goodness, for your deeply spiritual (laughs) desires for goodness. He says, I want him to fulfill the resolve you have to do good, just to do good. (laughs) I think that's tremendous. I think we need to to note that it's very simple for a person to back off and to walk away from the, the the impulse of the Spirit of God in your life simply because you're wondering whether it's from God or not. Now he says, I want him to fulfill every desire for good. And again, I want to say this isn't for deeply spiritual people. This is for people that are just on the way. But he has a faith in God. You see, if you're going to pray, and you're going to pray boldly, you're going to have to trust God. Yeah, people can mess it all up. But God's at work in them. He's at work, and he's counting on that work. And he's counting on when that work takes place. Then you will have desires to glorify God, and they will be good desires. Now, the goodness he's talking about here isn't desires to be good people. It's desires to do good for other people. Have you got that? This is not a desire that I should be a, a person who is good in the sense of just put him on a shelf and, oh, yeah, he's good. We want to be like, again, a great example of it, one of my favorite characters, Barnabas. What does it say about Barnabas? Barnabas? Um, his... his qualifications with this he was a 
good man and full of the Holy Spirit. And in his goodness, he went and got Paul. And in his goodness, he, take, he gives away land. In his goodness, uh, he gives away the, the, it was his example of selling property and giving the money to the church that led Ananias into his hypocritical move. This is the man who, who, when he saw people around him in need, and he saw that there was a difficulty here and could meet it, he stepped in there. He was a good man. See, the goodness he's talking about here is not the goodness of just being Technically, you've, you've got the stamp of goodness on you. It is practical goodness to people who are in real need around you. So that when Jesus healed people, he was being good to them. When he laid his hands on those little children, he was being good to them. It was goodness. May God fulfill every desire for good. And he says this, and your work of faith with love. May he fulfill every work of faith. Now, um, just so I make sure I get this said, the work of faith and the desire for goodness, I don't think are separate. I believe he's talking about them as being, this is how it all works out. But you, when you have real faith, which is what we were at earlier in their class, when I have real faith, it's active. It is active. Leon Morris in his commentary again on speak about this, and I should have brought it and read it to you because it's, his line is better than mine. But I'll try to paraphrase him. He said this, faith is always active in the Christian life. It is active in taking hold of the blessing that God has provided for him. It's active in doing that. It doesn't just admire what God has given to him. It takes hold of it in the practical experience of life. It takes hold of the power of God to do the will of God and bring blessing to people. It does that. It takes hold hold of the power of God in order that the purpose of God might be fulfilled. That's what it does. Now, we, we, can, uh, we can kind of balk at all that. And, but listen to what Paul's praying. Because I know what you can get to, all right? You can get the other side of it. You can say, well, boy, who am I to try to do this? Who am I to try to do that? <laughs> what, I mean, the great men out there. Well, let me just say this about it. Because I really, this is a day in which there's an enormous amount of need all around us. And it kind of goes, so much of it goes untouched. And it kind of concerns me that the church is not touching as much need as is out there. See, this week we received news that there is a tragedy right on this street, right on this street. To a person who, I didn't know them, but I talked to them. There it is. Real tragedy. And I thought, you know, they were right there, and they lived there for 30 years. 30 years. Now, again, I'm not taking the guilt. or <laughs> I'm saying, is it desire for goodness? See, see, this desire for goodness has to do not with things that are way out there. It has to do with the people you actually know in the circumstances you're actually in. The kingdom of God comes one person to another in real circumstances, whatever those circumstances happen to be, whether they're tough circumstances, narrow places like Paul in prison, or wide open places like Paul preaching in, in Corinth. Both of them involve the kingdom of God coming, but it will finally come down to person to person. We, we're gonna, we have a part in that. Okay, back to that place. The work of faith. You say, I don't know. I don't know if I'm up to that. But listen to the way Paul puts it. He puts it in terms of God look, watching this desire for good. And he says, may God fulfill it. May God fulfill it. You've got to catch the prayer. May he fulfill every one of them with power. The powers from him and the fulfillments from him. But the way it's written, the desire is your desire. The purposing for good is something I do. The work of faith is the faith comes from you. Does that make sense? The, the, the fulfilling of it or the, uh, the fulfilling of it and the power for it are from God, but it does, it's yours. It's yours. God's doing a work in you. And when a person is transformed from an individual who lives in the darkness and doesn't have any life, and they have life, and they begin to live this way, 
they're going to be prepared for that day. They'll be walking worthy when they allow God's desires, the living Christ in you, to put desires there and then see them fulfilled and to do the works of faith and see them fulfilled. Remember, Mr. Carroll used to uh, give an illustration, and it's so to me it's so ragged because I can't remember all the details, but it was of a painter who was learning how to paint. He was in, a, in art school. Then this was in the way back. And he worked on a painting, and he worked on it late into the night, and it really was not coming together. Student, here he was. And he finally just threw in the towel and said, that's it, I'm just going to go to bed. He was a very frustrated man. His instructor, and I think it was a relative, but I, his instructor came in. He agreed with him. It needed a lot of help. So the guy looked at it, took up the whatever you, anyway, started painting. And he spent the night repainting what he thought the guy was after. And in the morning, the guy comes in, he looks at the paint and says, man, I didn't do as bad, nearly as bad as I thought I had. Because there was, he, he had a, a desire for it, but a master took it over and, and did it the right way. I had a chance to meet Joy Ritterhoff when she was old and I was young. So you <laughs> went way back. I was very young and I had a chance to meet her. Uh, uh, a different person. A person vivacious. And if there was ever a person that wasn't going to let uh, her own limitations get in the way of her vital faith, that was her. She was a missionary in Central America when she was young. Um, built, was doing a work down there, and then she got sick. And I don't remember what the sickness was, but she had to go home. And she was from California, and she went home, and now she can't do it. But she had a desire for good. And this simple woman, and she, and she, and she <laughs> you met her, and you almost didn't believe she had any talents except for buoyancy, right? She was bubbly, and, and she just won by sheer force of her personality. And she determined that she was going to still help these people back here by sending them messages. Now, this is before tape recordings. This is when she had to scratch these onto. Anyway, she, I don't know what she, I don't even think it was records at the beginning. But she had a desire for good. And that woman trusted God. Now, again, you have to have met her. She was a dear woman. I want to say that. And she had buoyant faith. But how did she accomplish? Before it was, she was gone, she had built a, a big work to send messages all over the world. Now, people can argue that it could have been done better. This is the way we go. Oh, I don't know if that couldn't have been if we would organize it. But she did it. And all over this world, there are people who didn't know God then who do know God because she let God fulfill a desire for good in her and to build a work of faith. She took hold of what she had been given in the Lord and determined that it was going, she was going to count on it to empower her, and then she was going to use the power of God to accomplish the purpose of God. And she was irrepressible in her faith there. Now, all I'm saying for this is that Paul has a very great faith in God. We're going to pray without ceasing. We have to have a very great faith in God. But think of the things he believed God would do if he would ask him. So he says here what? I want you to. I want God to make you worthy of that day. And here's what's going to have to take place. Here's what I'm believing him to do in order that you can be worthy, in order he can look at your life and say it's worthy. I want him to fulfill every desire for good that you have in him. Every resolve you have to do good. And I want him to fulfill every work, every work of faith. I want to finish by saying that Joy Ritterhoff, had, she had the big work. Okay. But it's a bad illustration in another sense because the issue isn't whether it ends in a worldwide mission or not. We don't have any record that there was any kind of a big missionary program that came out of Thessalonica. We don't know the names much of anybody who was there. But we do know 
that by the time three years was over and, and Paul's writing to them, the fame of their love for each other and their faith in God had spread and encouraged brothers all over the church. God can do great things for us. God can do great things for us. What, the, what desires for good is he putting in you? What are the things that he's inspiring you? It could be with regards to your neighbor. It could be with regards to your church. Now again, it doesn't mean I can go do anything, but don't waste your time worrying so much about whether it's from God. Ask yourself this. Have I committed myself to God to do his will? Have I turned from idols to serve the living God? Well, if you're going to serve the living God, then count on this. For those who are committed to him, he works in them. And he works in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure, which means that those purposes for good have to come from him. And if they've come from him, let him fulfill them. And pray for the brothers and sisters around you that he, God will do this in them, that we will know what it is to have those desires fulfilled and the work of faith that comes out of those desires, that, that matches those desires. The laying hold of God to see this fulfilled is brought to its fullness. And he got that all into two verses because he has great faith. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It means to have a consistent life, but that consistent life bubbles over when he faces the real needs of these people. And he asks for practical things in all simplicity. Well, let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to teach us. Father, meet us. We live in a world of hurt, confusion, rebellion, and yet you're building a church. And we're asking you to work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure, and then you would fulfill in us. Lord, we're praying that for ourselves tonight, this group right here, that you will fulfill, bring to fruitfulness all those resolves to do good, and that you will bring to fruitfulness all of those works that we're doing trusting you, that you will glorify your name in us. Father, we come and trust you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.